Hello, hello, and welcome. We are your prime time bitches, your silly trope slayers, the first girls to go. Woo! We are a horror podcast hosted by a Black woman and a Latina, bringing social justice analysis into one of the most twisted genres of film, horror. I am Crystal, representing your Black girl magic. And I'm Sam, a Latina. (laughs) The pride. (sighs) And we would like to give a trigger warning for this episode. We're going to be discussing sexual assault, violence, and genocide. So if any of those are a big trigger for you, might want to come back for the next episode. But other than dark things, Sam, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about La Llorona again. Welcome, friends. Welcome back to our La Llorona series and La Llorona representation in media. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the La Llorona film from Guatemala. Um, Yeah. The director of this film is Jairo Bustamante. There you go, y'all. Yeah, shout out to him because I honestly really like this. Like this movie or Curse of La Llorona better? (laughs) Uh, question like one movie's just objectively better than the other <laughs> which is and in case you're confused it's this one this is the good one <laughs> in case you have any doubt listener we 10,000 times prefer this film over the other um, for many reasons I I personally think that this film brings to light an important issue that a lot of people out there in the world do not know about Um, And I think it really highlights the mistreatment of indigenous communities, which is something that is a problem and a major, major issue in all all parts of the world, honestly. So I just think I I think it has a greater purpose. I think it serves a greater purpose. I think it's like really it's powerful is what I'm trying to say. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I think the films take incredibly different approaches to the narrative of La Llorona. Um, the Curse of La Llorona is much more what you'd expect. It follows like all like the key pieces of uh, the, like folk tale of children wandering from their parents, encountering a weeping woman in a white and white, uh, the ch- uh, her drowning the children just like she did to her own children. Uh, whereas like in this movie. Uh, this movie is more of an interpretation of that legend. Uh, it uses the legend of La Llorona as a backdrop to talk about important social issues like the treatment of indigenous workers and the Mayan genocide, which I learned about through this film. So uh, I think the looser interpretation of the story is what led to some of the criticism it receives as people expected more of like, a scary story or like more uh like a traditional like horror like setup whereas like house like sam talked about earlier the story like builds tension and then kind of just like lets it like simmer down instead of like jumping out and scaring you yeah i agree i and you know, I kind of like the loose interpretation too, though, because at least for me, I was attracted to this film when I saw like, oh, La Llorona and oh, Guatemala, like, oh, a Central American, like version of the story, right? I didn't even, I didn't even pay attention to what was going on. And then I started watching it and I thought, oh, wow, like it really draws you in with the title, with the theme 
but it's mm-hmm. really meant to draw you in to talk about these issues, which I think is like a very smart strategy. Whereas the other one is definitely like, let's make this movie and make money. <laughs> like, let's yes. make money. Let's put it in the Conjuring universe. Let's do it. And, let's get you know. this coin. <laughs> and, you know, I think I think that's valid. I think it's perfectly valid. But I just I have a huge soft spot for films that are actually trying to communicate a story and trying to like have a message. So, yeah, 10 out of 10. Uh, yes literally I think the like intentions and like thoughtfulness behind them are just very different because uh the curse of La Llorona is trying to fit within a franchise um which and it's kind of like hey look this franchise isn't racist here's a brown story Except Where then the, it's the protagonists all are all white. But guess what? We made La Llorona brown, so we're not racist. Yeah. Um, because because brown people are monsters. Anywho. Anyhow. Wears- a whole <laughs> other thing we could unpack, but moving forward. Moving forward. Um, I think uh, the Bustamante um, La Llorona is just better at like representing indigenous culture and discussing Guatemalan issues. There's just a lot more like intentionality behind the story and like a lot of like more care put into regretting the story than the cash grab of the the cash grab diversity quota curse of La Llorona. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Would you see like in the casting and then the like film crew um like the crew is like the main lead is a mayan indigenous woman we love that um and like the film crew is all um latinx folks of different ethnicities of like guatemalan mexican puerto rican which we love a diverse set. And I think it says a lot too, because this myth isn't right. So I think one thing is this folklore, you know, the whole La Llorona story, it's heavily attributed to Mexico. And it's a lot of the lenses and framework we see is very like a Mexican oriented story. But I think what this brings to light, which I like is like, this is a story that everyone in the Americas knows, right? Like the weeping Mm. woman. And I think it's really cool how you take a story that everyone's familiar with, you have your diverse cast and you use it in a different light that people aren't used to. And I think it really sheds light on like a different side of the same story because La Llorona has different versions, right? Which we've talked about Mm. in a previous episode. Um, But you know, it's got different versions. If you haven't seen it. Yes, listen, listen friends, but um, which I'll kind of briefly go over again. But yeah, so I, I just think that that, it says a lot. Um, also, again, my mom's Salvadorian, so like Guatemala's right there. It's right next to us. So like, similar myths, similar interpretations, similar, mm. etc. But uh, Sam, Central American preferential biases. It's shining um, through. It's shining it will shine through. through a lot today. So uh, I think what would be helpful right now is to talk about what this movie like what the story is yes yes so yeah so there's you know again briefly again this movie is 
really about a general who's being prosecuted for the his involvement in the Mayan genocide, right? And basically, I guess a ghost, a phantom, whatever you want to call her, um, Alma, she's the, I guess, embodiment of La Llorona in this film. She kind of comes back and the Ooh, whole, like the, phrase the whole, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. The whole, the whole, the whole film is really just, it's again, it's a revenge story. It's justice. But to kind of, you know, give some background, because, you know, there is Guatemalan folklore that's evident through the film. So I'm going to talk about Guatemalan folklore, uh, La Llorona, La Ciguanaba, which I will get to because listeners, La Ciguanaba is also a really interesting story. And also I'm going to talk about frogs because I thought the frogs in this film were so interesting. So there exists a lot of folklore in Guatemala, like anywhere else. But I think this movie really points to a few of these stories and they sort of shine through. Obviously, mm-hmm. the first one is The Legend of La Llorona. Of course, that's the title of the movie, obviously. Right. As we have mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast, if you haven't checked it out, you definitely should check out our other La Llorona episode. The Legend of La Llorona has a lot of variations in terms of the storytelling, and that really depends on who you ask. But the gist of it, as we all know, is a woman falls for a man. He does not love her back. And sometimes he betrays her, sometimes he abandons her, sometimes he's married and he leaves her, etc. And her children die either by accidental drowning because she's not paying attention or she neglects them in some way, or by her own hand, either in an act of desperation out of, you know, not having a way out or out of malicious intent because she wants them out of the way. In terms of the film, I think it takes us to a different place, a very different place and a really interesting perspective of La Llorona. You know, Mm -hmm. we see her personified as an indigenous woman who witnesses her children being drowned by a malicious militia. And then she's murdered. And I really think that turns the story on its head. We go from seeing her as an antagonistic and malicious woman that we're meant to fear in other versions to seeing a woman bent on vengeance and the retribution that she deserves. You're really rooting for her in this film. Mm. Like you're rooting for her. You are with her. You're like, Mm -hmm. come on, let's F this up. Um, And it shifts the story from seeing her as an antagonist to seeing her as someone seeking justice. Overall, I really like this choice because I think it also serves to see how folklore can be used as a tool to demonstrate the trauma um, that people have had and the justice that people deserve. However, there was another scene in this film that really caught my attention. I was talking to you about this, Crystal, and it really got me thinking. And it was that one scene, there's a scene in the bathroom in this film where Alma um, are, you know, our embodiment of La Llorona. She's naked, she's washing her by the water, she's looking gorgeous. Um, Some of our listeners may have had the same feeling watching this if you're familiar with the legend or know what I'm about to bring up. But that scene almost mirrored the legend of La Ciguanaba to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for those of you that don't know, La Ciguanaba is a folk story common in Guatemala as well as other parts of Latin America, including El Salvador, shout out. Um, (laughs) In Costa Rica, shout out. Uh, and repping her people yes and it's about a woman Mm -hmm. who sits by the river and all she does is she lures men into trouble sometimes their death some versions of the story have this woman naked by the water often washing her hair she's gorgeous she's supposed to be this beautiful woman irresistible you can't take your eyes away from her and Mm -hmm. when men see her they get distracted and they of course they do right duh (laughs) 
Also, I love how it's always the men. It's, it's never women, it's always the men. So they see her, they get distracted and they often stray off whatever trail or path they are on so they can get close to her. Mm. Now, the story varies a little depending on who you ask again. In the story, some men get close and they die because she kills them by keeping them there so long that they just, they die. Um, You know, they don't eat or drink anything. Um, Mm. Some men get close and her face changes to that of a horse and they go crazy from the trauma and sometimes die. Whatever the case may be, the outcome is never good for the men who come into contact with La Ciguanaba. And I just find that to be interesting because you can definitely see a parallel with this story and the scene of Alma in the bathroom with the sketchy, gross military leader almost foreshadowing his demise in a way because he's really just staring at her in awe and it just gets him into trouble, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought it was really interesting because I said, this is sort of foreshadowing. Like she's luring you into a trap. She's luring you into death. And La Ciguanaba is meant to be seen as very sexual. She's meant to be seen as like sort of, you know, some versions have her with large breasts and some versions have her very, you know, curvy, a very beautiful woman, right? Um, Mm. Whatever your ideal woman is, that's what she's supposed to look like. So Mm. I think it's really interesting. And also I think it's interesting because they also question his sanity a lot. And we see that Mm. more after this encounter, which I think Mm. sort of parallels La Ciguanaba as well, because it kind of hints to that, right? It kind of hints to the fact that like, oh, he's looking upon this beautiful woman and he's kind of losing his mind slowly. As Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, he's also hearing the crying. So that has a lot to do with this. Um, So I just thought that was interesting. Check out La Ciguanaba. There's so many different versions of the story and it's wild, but I don't have time to go over all of them here. So the last thing I want to talk about with regards to the Guatemalan folklore are frogs. So... Obviously, there are other important concepts in this film, but we don't have 10 hours and the frogs really caught my attention. I love frogs. And if I'm being, com- <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, I love frogs. So we see some frogs hanging out upon Alma's arrival. She even has one in her hands at one point. And we also see some in the family pool. They're kind of mm-hmm. eerie. They're definitely used to foreshadow something. And this kind of struck me as eerie. So I did some digging to see if the frogs could have some meaning. And Which find. Well, I'm glad you asked. Basically, what I found was that in some areas of Guatemala, especially among the Mayan people, frogs are considered sacred and they are often considered messengers from the gods. Um, Mm -hmm. This got me thinking about the placement of the frogs in the movie and how they might mean or probably mean to signal what is to come, you know, like it's trying to deliver a message, especially because Alma is interacting with them. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of interpretations you could have about that. You know, she seems very comfortable with the frogs. Uh, also, I've had some personal, this is just a little personal anecdote, but I've had personal experience with the frogs and, you know, with relatives and stuff. And I know that some people use frogs um, and they use them to place curses or hexes on people, right? Mm. They use them as sort of like an embodiment of the person. Um, so there's that as well, which I thought was interesting. However, in either case, or however you want to interpret it, the frogs in the film are definitely meant to signal something bad um yeah yeah, definitely which i thought was interesting when you told me about it because i saw the thing with the frogs and i was like all right sam's an english major she studies metaphors and stuff like that she'll get it (laughs) she can just teach me because i was like this is important but i don't know why and especially uh thought your point of like them being related to like casting like hexes on people was interesting because we see in the movie that like 
there's like been a hex cast on the general and like his bedroom yes right when we see like that moldy wall and then he needs valeriana to give him a limpia right she's like cleaning him with the plants and stuff um, which i did not absorb as like a oh like there's a hex i'm just like i don't understand why we're having this big boss in the moment well, and again, it's interesting, right? Because all the, the curse or whatever you want to think about it, it's heavily associated with water, right? Because what causes mm. what causes that kind of mold damage in the wall? Water. Mm. Where did he commit this crime? In the water. So it's all just the water. Um, yeah. You know, so so I think that's that was interesting too. Um, so straying a bit from the folklore, you can't talk about this movie without talking about the Mayan genocide in Guatemala um that is the heart of this film that is really like mm-hmm. the main issue it wants to get at so it's a topic we definitely need to speak on and so the mayan genocide it comes it also has other names um some people call it the guatemalan genocide and it's also known as the silent holocaust and the film obviously revolves around this uh the old man the evil general whatever you want to call him the guy who's being haunted deservingly by La Llorona, he played a part in the genocide. So it's important to go over some of the history of what happened. Mm-hmm. So colonialism, as we all know, has obviously existed in Guatemala since the Spaniards set foot on the soil. Very unfortunate. So Guatemala used to be at the heart of the Maya civilization, according to a variety of sources. Um, but of course, that has been reduced at an insane rate and an insane amount because of colonialism. And any place, inequalities have existed in Guatemala for a long time. And, you know, obviously the inequalities are directed more at the indigenous community. And this came to a head in the early 1960s when the Guatemalan Civil War began to break out. And I also want to point out that this instability and political turmoil is not something unique to Guatemala. We see Mm -hmm. a lot of this in other countries throughout the world that have been colonized, including other places in Latin America. So civil war begins to break out due to inequalities, particularly economic ones. And Mm. a lot of oppression from the government also comes in during this time in the 1970s. The Maya people. People start participating in protests against the government. They demand greater equality and they wanted more inclusion of the Mayan language and of the culture. Not an irrational request, not an insane thing. Um, The bare minimum the government could do, honestly. And in 1980, the government started a program called Operation Sophia. And the aim of this program was targeted at ending insurgency by civilians and guerrilla warfare. They were specifically targeted because they were believed to be hiding and supporting people who were in the guerrilla movement. This is a crucial part of the film because we see this play out when the soldiers bring Alma out with her children to the river. They are threatening her children because they want her to reveal the location of the guerrilla forces, but she obviously does not know where they are or what what is happening. And this is unfortunately something that happened quite a lot. You had a lot Mm. of people with no ties to guerrilla forces, no ties to like the, the insurgency or anything like that, being accused of that and then paying consequences for something they were not even a part of lots of violence. Over the next few years, the Guatemalan army destroyed 626 villages. That's the estimate. And the other estimate is more than 200,000 people were killed or have disappeared. Some people have never been found. There are also about 1.5 million people who were displaced by these actions. And also approximately more than 150,000 people fled to Mexico during this time. 
During this time, the government also violated sacred places and destroyed cultural symbols. And another important thing to note is, as with many of the horrible and terrible things that have occurred in Latin America and around the world, the U.S. government backed the government during this time period because they of were afraid they of communism. The fear of communism led to them condoning and supporting the slaughtering of a whole community. Um, Another thing to consider is also that Catholic priests and nuns, which I did not know, I did not know until I read up on this, were also mm. targeted during this time, which mm. I never knew. And this is being their rights. Um, mm. And you actually see this a lot in Latin America. Like you see a lot of religious folks like supporting um, indigenous people, which is, you know, a nice change of pace, I suppose. Um, Honestly. <laughs> not what I would expect, but a relief. Um, so actually a few of them also disappeared and were murdered as well. Anybody that was very outspoken. The estimate is about 95% of the people who were killed or disappeared were of Mayan descent or, you know, identified as a Mayan individual. And then the other 5% were people that were actively supporting um, these, this group of people. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of all this are still evident today. Many people never got justice. That's something that's really important. That's something we see in the film where, you know, mm -hmm. he's convicted, but then he's absolved and there's all this drama with that. And that's why there's protesters outside of his house at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And trials against the military started happening in 1998. And there have been some convictions. Some people have been convicted to hundreds of years, but obviously you're never gonna get everybody that was involved to face the consequences of their actions. Um, which I think is one of the big themes in this movie is like, she is after the people that have not faced the consequences of their actions. Mm, I actually think that point's really interesting because I feel like you see the theme of justice in so many other horror movies too. Because like you were mentioning about like him getting off on the trial due to a technicality, which reminded me of A Nightmare on Elm Street and like mm. Freddy Krueger's backstory mm. where the whole thing is he abused children got off on a technicality and so the parents are often a big theme of horror it's just that this movie does not sugarcoat it there's no like hiding it behind fantasy there's just like the horror of humanity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree mm -hmm. Yes, and since Sam has been so kind as to educate us about the Mayan genocide and the practices there within, I'm going to be talking a bit about the, uh, the treatment of indigenous folks in Guatemala in a, like today in a contemporary context and uh, specifically how uh, indigenous workers are treated. Uh, it's a pretty big part of the movie of like all the indigenous characters of the film that interact directly with the family are like domestic workers. Um, and there's a lot of tensions between the family and the household staff that um, feed into uh, Guatemalan social context today. And so this information I'm talking, giving you all today came from a report from the Human Rights Watch. So there's that context and like it's and a lot of what I found is that income inequality in Guatemala is like incredibly severe which Sam touched on earlier um 
like more than half of Guatemalans like live in uh, poverty and over a quarter live in extreme poverty. Uh, and the majority of those in extreme poverty are indigenous folks. Uh, my women in particular are severely disadvantaged because uh, they have lower Spanish literacy rates uh, than their non-indigenous counterparts. And they often work in the least secure the least financially secure sectors, uh, such as domestic labor. Um, uh, Maya women have uh, for like a long time been the foundation of Guatemalan domestic work uh, and make up half, if not the majority of like do the domestic working population uh, today. Uh, a lot of non-indigenous like women who are working in Guatemala have been able to shift to like more secure industries of like uh, factory work opportunities. And I think you see the like the working dynamics for like indigenous people in the movie, um, because uh, the entire um, Monteverde household staff are indigenous, and none of them speak Spanish except for Valeriana, who is biracial, uh, which Sam's going to talk about later. Um, and these women are particularly vulnerable as they're like to abuse as they're cut off from their community. They've left uh, often rural areas full of uh, their like racial like, peers to work in like urban households in the city with employers who have a great deal of control over like where they work and where they go, uh, which we also see the Monteverde family uh, exhibit over their staff, such as the general's wife telling Alma like don't wear green anymore after uh, and also there's a bit of controlling behavior around like when the household staff can rest and eat uh, subtly sprinkled throughout the movie uh, as I was like touched on a bit earlier they are also vulnerable to sexual harassment from employers the report includes one story of a woman who was like groped by her male employer and when she told his wife the wife told her to like ignore it and like didn't care <laughs> Uh, which is similar to how like when the general attacked like Alma or was, like staring at her in the bathroom, uh, the wife just tells her not to wear green anymore. Like there's no sympathy or concern for this young woman who her like husband just uh, was like creeping on and attacks later in the movie. And so uh, because of like these domestic positions also tend to provide like uh, financial opportunities and like shelter, losing that job can also cause homelessness. Uh, again, making these workers incredibly dependent on their employers. Um, and because this industry is so like insecure, um, employers can fire people, workers with like very little notice. Uh, but similarly, workers can also dip with little notice, uh, which we see by like the entire household staff leaving at the beginning of the movie. Because like as Sam talked about, they know something's about to go down. And as is tradition in horror, all the, bi all the BIPOC folks. Another point the report brings up is how uh, children are often abusive to these like domestic workers. And in a lot of cases, the parents don't do discipline them which drives like the workers away and I wanted to bring up this dynamic because I think it highlights like the goodness and purity of the granddaughter Sarah uh, because she's the only person in the family who treats Alma like a person who like asks her about her family and her life 
like when the family finally realizes that Alma is creepy and it takes them way too long. Way to too realize long. This way too sucks. long. Ridiculously <laughs> long. I was like, what? But okay. They're like, wait, where is she from? Who is this woman? Basically at the end of the movie. And like the granddaughter is like, oh, she's from here. She has she has two kids. Like, and just like starts talking about her life because she's the only person, because the granddaughter is the only person who bothered to learn anything about her. Um, yes, but uh, going back to the treatment of domestic workers, uh, they work really like brutally long hours and don't have many much legal protections, um, which doesn't seem to be the case in the uh, Monteverde household uh, because we see Alma like, playing with Sarah a lot, um, spending time with uh, Sarah. Um, so it seems like there's a bit more downtime in this house, um, which could be play into why the general's daughter is confused and a little frustrated when the entire household staff leaves because she's like we treat you so well compared to these other people who like abuse domestic workers and underpay these workers um and like are uh like exploitative we treat you so well we give you time for breaks we buy you better food she mentioned uh getting them like uh, nice tortillas that like that even they eat um they have like time for religious practices. Uh, we see like Valeriana praying uh, Catholic prayers and engaging in indigenous practices too. But this is not me saying that these are good people. These Most of these people are trash except for the granddaughter. They just show basic human decency, which sadly seems to be pretty rare. Um, and all these factors go into um, the weight of like the indigenous staff's decision to leave their position at the Montevideo household. They left the house with somewhat reasonable hours, decent pay, decent living conditions, because they're like, this is not the vibe. We have to go. Well, also, um, also to be fair, they know what's coming, right? Because oh, they know. There's, there's that whole scene where he's in bed and he's talking about how he hears a woman crying and you could see them communicating, not in Spanish, right? They're communicating in the indigenous language and they're like, oh, oh no, like, like we gotta go. And then Valeriana is like, oh, they didn't say anything. It's not important. And I'm like, <laughs> girl, they just said that they got a dip before like all the bad stuff's about to happen. So literally I like um, they see the general acting crazy and talking about hearing stuff. Also, this man literally like, because he's hearing things, he thinks there's like an intruder in the house. So he does what most flipping white men do. He grabs a gun and starts shooting. <laughs> and he dang near kills his wife. And you know, and the I, staff I think- is like, if he dang near kills his wife, what's he gonna do to us? And I think it's not even, you know, I mean, yes, the stuff, the stuff's, the stuff's vibe is valid, but I think also, you know, in terms of him grabbing that gun, I don't even think that's just like a white man thing. It's also his guilty conscience. He's like, mm-hmm. he really thinks these protesters are going to break in and murder him. And I'm like, well, can you blame him? <laughs> right. You're like, I would, as you're watching this, you're like, I wouldn't be mad if that was the ending. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, and so I think Valeriana offers the fact that he 
started randomly shooting in the middle of the night as like the explanation for why they're leaving. But like, as we're talking about, no, they know she's coming. I think they straight up say she's coming. Yeah, yeah, they say so. It's something to that effect. Yeah. So as the movie like goes on with like all of, which pretty much all of the like domestic uh, staff leaving uh, because self-preservation, good for them. Uh, this forces the family to like step up more and take care of the general because like uh, we mentioned earlier, he's like an older man now. Um, they think he's, uh, they think the reason he's hallucinating is because he's getting Alzheimer's. So like, he's like an older sick, like man, that like someone has to take care of. Um, and I think like looking at the dynamics between the family and like the indigenous workers, we see a lot uh, revolving around intergenerational trauma. So that is what I'm going to talk about next. Uh, the film deals a lot with intergenerational trauma, uh, which is harm being done to like a community or family uh, to such an extent that like the trauma induced by that harm passes down generations. Uh, an example of this in the American context would be uh, like lynching and black children who grew up watching people be lynched watching people like randomly disappear uh the same as what's happening to indigenous folks currently um they develop a sense of like hyper vigilance as they grow up which they teach their children to be like hyper vigilant even when uh, like lynching became less pre- less uh prevalent uh, which it's not over friends lynching still happen today but uh, that's another episode um having like traumatic responses which they then teach their children uh, because they want to give their children like the tools needed to like survive in the world um though so this film takes us through the like intergenerational trauma stemming from genocide uh where indigenous people like today are probably incredibly like hyper vigilant around like law enforcement or military personnel. Um, and I also wanted to talk about um, mortality rates for like women and children in Guatemala, considering the fate of Alma and her children in the movie uh, and the maternal mortality rate for or my women is amongst the highest in Central America in Guatemala. Um, and the child mortality rate is way higher for indigenous children than their non-indigenous counterparts. Um, and so I bring up these mortality rates as ultimately at the heart of the story is like a woman and her two children were murdered by soldiers for like no good reason. Um, and so the violence Alma and her children experience at the hand of the general and his soldiers can be compared to how uh, the general treats his own family and like wears any sense of like empathy for like these people. We see like a mother and her children juxtaposed with the mother and her children and how they're treated by the same man is completely different. Um, and also there's a scene in the movie where it's like, the general's wife, his daughter, and his granddaughter, like, sitting on some stairs. Um, and I thought that was interesting to think about, because, like, you're seeing these three generations um, who are, like, scared and freaked out by the general. Um, and I think the family is representative of society's reaction to, like, systemic oppression of Indigenous people. We, You have the general okay. and his wife. 
okay. uh, with the general <laughs> and his wife who participated in or perpetuated this like systemic violence against indigenous folks their daughter who's the one coming to like this epiphany that my parents treated these people terribly like and like what does that mean and like is her react and we kind of see her teeter between is her reaction denial of this reality or accepting this reality for what it is and like what does that mean for her relationship with her parents um and you, you see the like a granddaughter representing the younger generation uh, showing like hope that the younger generation may be better because she again she's the only good person in this family um and she has a great relationship with alma who's a representative uh and that is missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the united states uh which, which is, is also really yeah critical really important yes um while this movie uh, focuses on Guatemala and the Latin American context, it's also important for us to acknowledge the treatment of indigenous communities within our own countries. Uh, and uh, as me and Sam are both uh, based in the US and I imagine a good chunk of this audience is as well, uh, we gotta check ourselves. Um, there uh, currently in the U.S. there are disturbingly high rates of Indigenous women and girls being kidnapped, sexually assaulted, murdered, or a combination of all three. Um, according to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, four out of five uh, Native women face violence on a daily basis. Uh, the murder rate for Indigenous women is like ten times higher than the national average, uh, and it's important for us to reflect on this because we all got to check ourselves and we all have to hold political leaders accountable to like repairing the harm done to these communities. Uh, and I would encourage you all to look into whose land you're living on, which is uh, the name of a website where you can educate yourself about that. Um, and if you want to like be a part of making things better, you could like uh, donate to like indigenous communities or uh, participate in like signing petitions uh, for like legislation uh, to repair harm. So that is my point and, on missing it. And honestly, you know, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's really important. And to our listeners, we will we'll have some links or websites in our description for this episode. Um, but yes. yeah, very, very, very critical and very um, devastating. But admittedly a tangent. So back to the movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are all about pop culture here. So let's get back to the movie. But but we're going to be talking about Valeriana now, right? So Valeriana, she is, I mean, I guess you could call her like la ama de llaves, which is what you would you would call her in Spanish. Um, but basically... Mm -hmm. That just translates to like the the keeper of the keys, um, which Ooh, really is, I love that. <laughs> yeah, so so that's what you call your like um, if you're a wealthy affluent person in Latin America with lots of you know lots of um, domestic workers and stuff. She's like your mm. head domestic worker. She's like the leader. Mm. She makes sure everything in the house runs smoothly. You know, yes. she's got the keys. Obviously, that's what I'm. You know, um, the mm -hmm. the Amada Yavas is but. Anyhow, so she, you know, she, as we find out, 
you know, at the beginning of the film, I was very confused. I think you were too, right? I saw her as kind of like this indigenous woman who's betraying her people by helping and taking care of this white man who committed genocide against her people. Like, why are we staying in the house? Why don't we leave with all the other domestic workers? I'm so confused. Mm. Um, and, you know, however, though, as the story unfolds, we find out that there's a suspicion that, um, what's her face? The, the Alma the woman. No, not Alma. Um, the mom, the grandma. Grandma has a suspicion. Grandma has a suspicion that Valeriana is actually the, the daughter of the evil general, right? And, mm. you know, she's kind of explaining this to her daughter, the evil general's daughter. Um, and, you know, she says that she's always suspected that Valeriana is her half-sister. And she talks about that the general reportedly brought Valeriana to the house when she was very young and it stated that she was about Sarah's age, right? And mm -hmm. as we know, Sarah's kind of a little girl. I think at the most she's maybe 10, maybe. Yeah, um, at the oldest. At the oldest, right? And so I think that's interesting because that sort of changes, or at least for me, it sort of changed how I saw Valeriana mm -hmm. because instead of seeing her like, oh, you're like a grown person and why are you siding? Now I'm like, well, that's very complicated because you've been here since you were a child and this man sort of saved you even though you're only in the situation because it's his fault it's very complicated mm -hmm. right and i found it important crucial to the story because she probably sees the general in a very complicated perspective a complicated light on the one mm -hmm. hand he killed her people but on the other hand he also spared her and she probably suspects or knows that he's her father so i think that adds a whole nother layer of complicatedness to the whole thing mm -hmm. and so she's sort of, you know, between two groups. She's caught right in the middle, right? She's caught between right. the indigenous community, but also her loyalty to this family. And I, you know, one thing I want to bring up too is the the grandmother, you know, the general's wife. She's constantly bringing up, right, um, that these indigenous women they would just throw themselves at him. You know, she knows that she's she's got this like whole she's got this whole beef with like indigenous women, and you know, she knows that they would do these kinds of things in the camp, that they would have sexual intercourse, you know, according to her in the camp. And, mm. you know, I think you can't speak about that without addressing the dark history here between white people sexually assaulting indigenous people. Um, you know, as we know, you know, with genocides and conquistas and all that kind of stuff, you have a lot of sexual assault happening. But I think it's right. also important, you know, is that again, the blame falls on indigenous women, right? At least mm -hmm. in the grandma's perspective, right? The general's wife. She really puts the blame on indigenous women. She's really painting them as like these sluts that just like throw themselves at him, throw themselves at all the military men. And she's really super concerned with his interaction with Alma. You kind of touched on this earlier, right? Like she puts mm -hmm. the blame on Alma when he's being really weird in the bathroom. And, you know, she's really, she tells her, right? Not, you know, to change her clothes right partially mm -hmm. because like the outfit she was wearing previously is also kind of tight right so you see her mm. curves you see her boobs like they're more accentuated and you know she can't have her husband looking at that and mm -hmm. so I think you know that it says a lot about how it's framed and you know mm. you you're kind of seeing it from the other perspective though where it's like well she was just minding her business and taking a bath what do you mean right and I think it's interesting because you know she's super concerned with his interaction with Alma and other indigenous women and in my own experience, I've seen this is very common among people of my own family and people like 
in Latin America, right? There's mm. tons of stories of indigenous women throwing themselves at men and, oh, they're so, you know, slutty and so sexually whatever, right? But, you know, I think that fails to recognize one that, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I don't trust men's word nine times out of 10. Like, I just mm. think like, you know, sexual assault is a major issue in the world. And, mm. you know, consent is important. And I think like, people have defining lines of what consent is. But the other thing I want to bring up is you have a lot of young women being, you know, courted or seduced or however you want to frame it by older men, right? right. And the thing is, even if even if you're consenting, if you're like 14 or 15 and this guy's like 30, 40, that's not okay, right? Mm. And I've seen this a lot among people of Latin America. I've seen this a lot, particularly with like, you know, white people or stories of like white soldiers coming into Latin America, you know, with indigenous mm. communities and even like, you know, like non-indigenous communities, right? Like there's this sort of like, oh, there's no real consent law here. They're from the US or they're from like Europe or they're, you know, they're the ruling class of some kind. So there's sort of a, there's a power dynamic there. And so mm -hmm. I think you can't really label consent the same. So I think that's an important thing to address because this film sort of deals with that where she keeps saying like, oh, they throw themselves at them and blah, blah, blah. Not really considering, well, most of these women are probably raped. And even the ones that right. are quote unquote consenting do not have the power to consent in these situations. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, so just to address kind of what you said before, like Alma has done nothing to call attention to herself. Um, and yet the general's, you know, enamored by her and he invades her space and she's the one told to change her clothes. And so mm. the power dynamics between the family and her, that's so obvious. Especially um, since, like, say they did, like, seduce these men and then they changed their minds. Like, do we really think these men are going to respect that? No, like. Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely. Like. And I think that's just so, and you know, that's common here too, right? Like when you hear different mm -hmm. stories of sexual assault, they vary. I think a lot of people visualize sexual assault as like, it has to be violent rape. You know, it's gotta be like, they pulled your hair and they tore your clothes off when most of the time it's really like revoking consent or can we slow down and they don't slow down and then things get very crazy, right? And I, I think mm -hmm. that's an important thing to recognize where it's like, there's this constant notion of you were asking for it, you were asking for it. And that's something so common, you know, against indigenous women and other women of color and, you know, women in general as well. Like, it's just so, it's repeated over and over. Like, you shouldn't dress this way. Why did you go over to say hello to these men, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but anyhow, so Valeriana, you know, we can assume is, you know, a product of this interaction of some kind, right? The product of the interaction between a military man and, you know, an indigenous woman. Whether or not that was mm -hmm. consensual, I highly doubt it, but right. we never know. Um, however, we can assume her mother is dead. So something tells me, yeah. So, you know, and that kind of made me think too about racial classification in Latin America, which we've also touched on in a previous episode about La Llorona. But, you know, since I touched on it before, I'm gonna readdress some of that here, but also, you know, check out our other La Llorona series if you wanna know more. Hey. Yes, shout out to ourselves. Um, <laughs> but basically in Latin America, you have this idea of mestizaje. Again, we're revisiting mestizaje. And this idea comes from a plan to whiten out the countries in Latin America, right? And, mm. you know, a lot of people want to make it out to be like, mestizaje is about mixing the races and the cultures. And we're all going to be just all multiracial and multicultural. That is not what's ha what happens. No, it's all mm. about, I want you to keep reproducing until your kids come out white. I want you to keep 
striving towards whiteness, right? And different countries in Latin America and in the world, but again, focusing on Latin America, took this right. in different ways. So many encouraged unions between European, Black, and Indigenous people, and the ideas like eventually the groups would whiten out, right? So there was a, a, a less creepy way, I guess. Um, however, other places decided that this would take way too long, so they d- decided to commit mass genocide, as, as we know from other places. The and- completely logical thought process, of course. God forbid we just leave people alone. <laughs> yes, God forbid we leave people alone. And other places exiled or kicked out indigenous and black communities, or they gave them their own separate piece of land. And it's like, this is your zone. This is our zone. You stay over here. We stay over here. Nobody bothers anybody. So mm-hmm. you see this play out through all of Latin America and you see, you see a lot of, um, you see it playing out in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, there's this myth when it comes to mestizaje that it's about unity and it's about making one race. And it's it's not about fusing all the cultures. It is really about fusing everything into the whitening a group of people. And this is something that is always done under the guise of mestizaje. You know, if you look at who eliminated these people, who, you know, there's this whole excuse about guerrillas and communism, but I think at its core, it's also like you targeted a specific group for specific reasons and they were seen as, you know, quote unquote, inferior, you know. Mm. So I think that's something that always needs to be addressed. Definitely. But now we get to one of my favorite topics as usual, religion. <laughs> I love that this is what you Because there's so much religion and horror. <laughs> there is. There's a ton. Um, so... Valeriana, you know, we see this fusion of indigenous and Catholicism, like religions. We see like, you know, one really thing that really struck me about the film is the difference we see between the white family at the beginning of the film praying for the evil general. And that contrasted against how we see Valeriana praying for him in her room. You know, mm. you and I had this whole like side combo where it was like, you're like, I don't know what's happening. And me, I'm like, oh, they're Catholic. Like literally the minute... The minute the movie started, I was like, oh, they're whispering, like, oh, da, 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 da. and they've got, like, you know, their candles and stuff. I'm like, oh, they're definitely a Catholic family. Um, Whereas I thought there, there, there was some ritual going on. I was not confused. I have, like, in my notes, a woman chanting in a circle, uh, whispering incantations. I was so lost. Your girl is Christian, but, like, that's not how we get down on my denomination. <laughs> Uh, again, reiterating, I have to take you to like a hardcore Catholic mass. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so as with this, right, it, it sort of struck you and me, you know, sort of performative versus genuine, right? Like mm-hmm. performative in the sense of it's in front of everybody. They're all just there praying. But then later on, we kind of find out they've got a lot of resentment towards the general. So like, is it really genuine? I don't know. Um, and you know, many Catholics, their prayer tends to be very dark and gloomy. We often wear little like shrouds or something. Um, we light a bunch of candles. We tend to whisper like when we do the rosaries and stuff. So I think this can be rather scary if you're not familiar with Catholicism. Um, I was so lost. I was like, dang, they're just throwing us into the creepy part of this movie. You know, I really think that's why Catholicism is so used in horror because it's just like the perfect backdrop. Like you've got our Gothic architecture, our, you know, we've got we've got all these stained glass windows with like creepy looking drawings. Like there's just there's just a lot there to unpack. And candles. Mm. Candles can always be creepy. Um 
So, but, but the thing is, there's something so intimate about that scene with Valeriana in her room, right? She's praying for a man who definitely ruined her life and that of mm-hmm. other people, that of her, you know, her whole group of people. But what is also interesting is we see this blending of Catholic traditions mixed in with indigenous ones, which is actually quite common throughout the Americas. Um, she's not praying in the Spanish language. She's praying in her, her own, you know, native language. And she's not praying out in the open for all to see. She's praying alone in her room in a private manner. And, you know, mm-hmm. it just seems like a more genuine intention, right? She wants to protect the family. And I think in doing this, there's something much more genuine about her prayer compared to the white family who, again, they have a lot of resentment towards this man and they're (laughs) praying and stuff. But she's over here like all quiet, like, you know what, like protect the family. And I want to touch on, again, going back to the idea of religious syncretism. Mm -hmm. Um, So religious syncretism is where you have the blending of two or more religions into a new system and or you have an incorporation of unrelated beliefs into a new tradition. So you may be asking, why am I bringing this up? The reason I'm bringing this up is because Valeriana throughout the film shows us aspects of her Catholic beliefs and her indigenous religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, We see her praying in her native tongue in a Catholic way in her room early on in the movie. And then we see her performing Olympia on the evil general later on in the movie, you know, with like the plants and stuff when she's trying to like cleanse whatever hex has been going on. And that's not a Catholic tradition, but an indigenous one. And in this way, Valeriana is once again, sort of in between both groups. She's crossing boundaries and she's connecting both the Catholic practices and indigenous practices together as one. And again, this is something that happens quite often with Catholicism because of colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. This happens with Catholicism and, and other indigenous and you know African religions because of colonialism. Once again, right. you have the fusing of practices into a new religion. But, you know, one major example of this, which I brought up, is Santeria, right? So Santeria comes from Cuba. What many people do not know is that Santeria is a combination of Catholicism and the traditional Yoruba religion of West Africa. Um, Again, I think we could have a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to go super into it. I also think Santeria has been villainized by the popular media. But anyhow, (laughs) which which has roots in anti-Blackness. But anyhow, um, I wanted to touch on this. I love that you included that. (laughs) But I wanted to touch on this because religious syncretism is something we definitely see in this film and it sprouts out of colonialism, which is again important to note. And it's also Mm -hmm. important to note that arguably Valeriana saves the whole family. Oh, that's not arguable. That's facts. (laughs) Like facts. She carried that family. She carried this family. She saves the family when she asks the spirits to spare the innocence of the house and only take the guilty. And they do that. And it's important to think about how powerful her prayer is and how genuine she is. And honestly, I wish her all the well in the world. (laughs) I adore you. Uh, Though again, honestly, I would have been fine with the spirits taking everyone but the granddaughter. (laughs) I think they're all trapped. Like the role of like the Catholic church because my workers, um, like don't have unions or formal ways to advocate for themselves so like sam was saying earlier the church tends to uh, represent their interests a lot which is where you have like um priests and like nuns like disappearing um i think it's um important in the context of like the movie because we see 
uh, indigenous people engaging with like Catholic prayers, which like to me was kind of surprising that like it's a fusing of the both of the practices, but I think is also rooted in the cultural dynamics that uh, Sam mentioned, but also the practical element of these are the only the Catholic church is trying to help me and like feeling a sense of obligation to participate from those resources and help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I agree. That, mm-hmm. so that was my little uh, nugget of religion and Sam's incredible uh, review. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we are going to wrap this episode up uh, by thinking about uh, depictions of indigenous folks in media and whether or not this movie did a good job. Uh, so like from my research of looking at uh native tropes associated with um film this movie does a good job of avoiding the pitfalls but i do think it engages with some of the uh tropes namely the magical indian a play off of the uh magical negro which we talked about in another there's of like trope indigenous tropes there's the magical indian the indian maiden and the natives are restless that I think the movie engages with these tropes, but does not fall into them. Um, so I think the trope we get closest to falling into is the magical Indian, uh, that a character who is indigenous randomly has like mystical or like spiritual powers used not to better their own situation, but to help a white protagonist. Um, and I'd say that um scene towards the end with Valeriana communicating with the spirits is about as close as we get to this but the film spends a lot of time developing a strong religious identity for her um so it feels less magical and more spiritual as well as the fact that she's technically a member of the family too so she's engaged with this ritual to protect the family but also herself it's like uh, we chose to stay in this house, so now we gotta try to protect ourselves. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and does I and I wonder if like as she was sitting there facing the spirit, she stood by that decision. <laughs> um <laughs> I would love to know what the thought process was at that moment, but we'll never Literally. know. Literally. <laughs> we'll never know. Uh so the next trope is the Indian maiden, where a beautiful indigenous woman lacks agency, ultimately functions as a so- as a source to be fetishized by men and so I thought about this trope in the context of Alma and whether or not she fits it because again she's this beautiful indigenous woman who is like around the family the dad definitely the general not the dad the general definitely sexualizes her um but I would also lean no for this because most of the characters she interacts with are women and she like very much so has a cl- an agenda when she arrives to this house. It is just fuck this general up. We have a mission and we're we have like... A <laughs> okay, and then finally there's the, the Natives are Restless trope, which is usually a mob of angry indigenous people tired of dealing with white people's nonsense um, on the brink of like rebelling completely. <laughs> Um, which I think we see this in the natural and supernatural context of the movie where there's the uh, all like the protesters and the media outside of their house and there's the spirits that like 
come into the house. You know, what gets me about the protesters, though, is because I paid very close attention to this. You Mm -hmm. see both like indigenous and non-indigenous people in the crowd, Mm. which I really liked because I was like, yes, because that's very accurate. Like this is an issue a lot of people in Latin America care about. And so I really like that because you could kind of tell they made a point of that, because even when Alma's by the window with Sarah, Mm -hmm they're looking and she's like see look and you can kind of see because they're pointing out the spirits they're pointing out the people that have been killed right Mm -hmm. who who you know are obviously indigenous people but then you see them also with like there's white people in the crowd and there's like Mm -hmm. like there's different people in the crowd which I think is like an interesting way to kind of fight that trope because it's like this isn't just something that matters to one group it's like it matters to like other people and you see that too with the reporters right because the reporters also so I really like that because I was like oh yes like everybody's pissed yes like (laughs) definitely and also I feel like we don't fall into this trope because you are not meant to sympathize with the general or most of this family (laughs) like you're like I'm there with you I'll help you break down this door like like when the spirits bum rush the house you're like get him <laughs> you're like at last <laughs> at last uh, and again as i've said a couple times halfway through this movie i started rooting for la Yorona to kill most of this family <laughs> because while the general is the one who committed like physically committed the atrocities wife is very much so fine with it um and daughter veers a little too closely to denial for my taste <laughs> like so granddaughter's the only person worth caring about which um which let's be real that's also because she's little (laughs) it's also because she's riddle little and hasn't accepted her privilege yet (laughs) yes so that was our discussion of la llorona everyone like yes let us know what you think Follow us on our social media at First yes. Girls To Go. We are on TikTok. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of this episode. What do you think we can do better? What What would you like us to talk about next? Like, mm-hmm. woo. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for hanging, everybody. Bye. Bye.